Welcome to the OPP Africana and South Asian Philosophies podcast series. Please join us to learn from thinkers around the world about the sub-themes Africana and South Asian philosophies and the values of our education of our public philosophy journal's second release, we call it Turn 2, in November 2021. Together we as students begin to inquire about traditions understudied in Euro-American philosophical institutions while investigating our own assumptions and the way our traditions present these philosophies. Here and beyond, we intend to participate in ameliorating the deficits in representation, respect and resources required to transform our minds and social worlds in search of how to live ethically. Hi, I'm Scarlett, a future African Studies student here at the University of Oxford. Um, Today I'm joined by my co-host Kay who's a fellow philosophy graduate, and our two guests, Sayed Elnabolsi and Professor Frederick Ocheng Odiambo. So this episode is here to introduce listeners to some of the themes of Africana philosophy, uh, and also to prepare them for engagement with Oxford Public Philosophy's second term. So as an introduction to the discipline, we first want to raise and ultimately dispel um, some common metaphilosophical concerns about Africana discourses, and also consider some epistemic differences between the African and the European traditions. Um, Then diving into some approaches to particular philosophical traditions, uh, Professor Ochiang talks to us about Kenyan philosopher Odura Aruka. So that's his concept of philosophic sagacity and also his broader aim of developing a truly authentic national culture, um, which he saw as operating to protect Kenya from harmful foreign practices and ideas. Um, to unpack this idea of authentic national culture, um, we then bring Aruka into conversation with cultural philosopher uh, Amakar Cabral. So Cabral broadly endorsed an anti-essentialist, historicised conception of culture, and he saw cultural liberation um, very much in terms of cultural autonomy as opposed to the preservation of indigenous cultures. Um, Zayad provides us with a really useful distinction between cultural influence and cultural domination, which we then apply to some common discussions about tradition and also cultural development in Africa. Um, I'd like to thank Zayad and Professor Ochiang for joining us today, and I hope you enjoy. Um, so, Frederick and Zayed, could each of you introduce yourselves, please? All right, if, if I may go first. Right? So, um, I'm a Kenyan by ancestry, born a couple of years before Kenya gained its political independence. Right? I earned my PhD in philosophy from the University of Nairobi in Kenya, having undertaken research and written a thesis in the area of African philosophy, 
with focus on philosophic sagacity. Now, the main supervisor of my thesis was Professor Henry Odera Oroka, a renowned scholar in African philosophy and considered to be the father of sage philosophy. I was employed as a graduate assistant in the, at the Department of Philosophy, University of Nairobi in 1985 and rose through the ranks as a tutorial fellow, lecturer, senior lecturer in the same institution. In the year 2000, I relocated to the Southern African nation of Lesotho, joining the Department of Philosophy there at the National University of Lesotho. In 2003, I moved over to the Caribbean, the island of Barbados, and joined the Department of History and Philosophy at the Kevel campus, the University of the West Indies. In 2009, I was appointed head of the department, a position I held until 2015. I, I served as Deputy Dean Planning in 2015-2016 and 2016-2017 academic years. I'm currently the Dean of the faculty, having been appointed in 2019. Now, besides African philosophy, my other research interests include social and moral philosophy, as well as logic. These are areas in which I have numerous publications which consist of texts, essays, book chapters, and book reviews. I think that more or less captures who I am. Uh, Zayad? Yeah, so I, uh, I just want to begin by thanking you, us, uh, thanking you for inviting us, and uh, it's a great honor to be on the same panel with uh, Professor Ochiang. And obviously, I don't have uh, the, the illustrious uh, pedigree that uh, Professor Ocheng has. So uh, I'm a PhD student working on uh, uh, modern African philosophy uh, at Cornell University in the Department of Africana Studies. Uh, so uh, my main areas of interest are uh, uh, the history of uh, modern African philosophy. Specifically, I'm interested in uh, philosophy of culture and also questions about the place of science in, in modern African cultures. Um, I'm also interested in uh, the place of uh, North African philosophy and African philosophy because uh, I'm originally from Egypt, so I have a personal interest in that, and obviously also uh, in ancient Egyptian philosophy and the way it gets deployed in, in, uh, in uh, we can call uh, mo modern African philosophy. Um, yeah, yeah, so I'll, uh, I, I think that suffices as well. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it is a pleasure to be with you. Before I hand over to Scarlett, I wonder if, Ocheng, could you give us a, a short introduction into the, the sort of um, movements of African philosophy? There's this trio that often comes up, ethno-philosophy, professional, and philosophic sagacity. Um, and then maybe Zayad, um, I might ask you to give us a, a short introduction on Cabral's work, because in a way, um, Ocheng, you're rep partly representing Odero Oruka and Zayad, um, you're representing Cabral, although you're both philosophers in your own right. 
Yes, all right, thank you. Right. Um, actually, now, in the area of African philosophy, I think uh, Professor Henry Odero Roca, whom, as I said, was my the main supervisor of my thesis, right? Uh, sometime in the 1970s, late 70s, actually, he identified four trends, or if you like, four approaches to African philosophy. Right? And these were ethno-philosophy, nationalist ideological philosophy, professional philosophy, and then philosophic sagacity. In his view, he said that any discourse in African philosophy could locate in either one of those four categories. Right? Now, of course, prior to that, the debate had been whether African philosophy exists or not. Right? Prior to that, I think, right up to, well, one can say right up to 1945, right, the publication of Placid Temple's book, Bantu Philosophy, is the one which changed the whole scenario, because he came up and said that there is what you may call African philosophy. It exists. Right? So, therefore, after 1945, several scholars started interrogating what Temple had said. Right? And out of that interrogation emerged the school of ethno-philosophy. Right? Well, it's Pauline Hontonji, another professional African philosopher, who in a way popularized that terminology of ethno-philosophy. Some people credit him for having coined it, but it's not really true, because Kwame Nkrumah, actually in, in the 1940s and 50s had used that term, ethno-philosophy. Right, so in ethno-philosophy, the position is that African philosophy is a lived philosophy. It is a communal philosophy. It's a philosophy of everyone, all right? The professional school does not quite agree with that, right? For them, for anything to pass as philosophy, whether African, Oriental, or Western, it must be critical. It must involve critical, independent, objective analysis. So they did not think highly of ethno-philosophy. Right? And then there are those who saw philosophy from the political standpoint. Right? So hence, the nationalist ideological philosophy. Right? So here you have you know, the founding fathers, political fathers of Africa, right? Kwame Nkrumah, Julius Nyerere, etc., etc., locate very well in that trend. Now, the basic the essence of that trend is that African liberation. Now, the African nation state would not be truly rebellated unless they revert back to the communal spirit of traditional Africa. Right? That, for them, was the route which one would take. Though, of course, they had differences amongst themselves. Kwame Nkrumah, Nyerere, 
there are differences, but generally that was the position. And then there was philosophic sagacity, which is generally attributed to Odera Oroka. His position was that, you see, the professional school, for instance, seem to ignore traditional Africa, right? uh, because for them they rubbished, so to speak, ethnophilosophy and traditional Africa. They thought that traditional Africa was too communalistic. It could not be philosophical. But Odera in his trend said, uh, uh, no, even in traditional Africa, we have these sages right, who are capable of critical independent thinking despite the fact that they are not schooled in the Western tradition, despite the fact that they are not professionally trained philosophers, but they are just as critical in their thought as the professionally trained philosophers. So those were the four approaches which Odera identified, and according to him, all of them fall within African philosophy. Right? So it's a, you can approach African philosophy ethno-philosophically through sage philosophy, through nationalist ideological philosophy, or through professional philosophy. So in other words, he did not discriminate. Right? He said all those are approaches which one could approach the study of African philosophy. Uh, so with respect to Cabral, uh, so to, to, to connect it to uh, uh, the kind of taxonomy that uh, Professor Ocheng has uh, just provided, um, so Cabral is sometimes subsumed, subsumed under the category of nationalist ideological uh, philosophy uh, because, of course, he is you know, a political figure. So uh, to give people a, a kind of brief overview of Amilcar Cabral's life, so... Uh, Amilcar Cabral was born in 1924 uh, uh, and he was assassinated in 1973. He was the leader of the liberation struggle which culminated in the overthrow of uh, Portuguese colonialism and the independence and unification of Guinea-Bissau and Cape Verde, which were Portuguese colonies. Um, so Cabral was, was uh, a key figure in, in founding the PAIGC, the party which, which led the, the liberation struggle in 1956. And he essentially led, led this party until his assassination by uh, uh, agents associated with the Portuguese colonial state. Um, so Cabral is, is interesting precisely because uh, if, if you look at uh, the context of the Portuguese colonies, uh, the Portuguese colonies, um, uh, the, the, the struggle for independence takes, takes place fairly late. So uh, there is a sense in which people like Amilcar Cabral are reacting to what they take to be the limitations of uh, earlier independence struggles. So Cabral has the speech, for example, in the aftermath of the uh, over, uh, overthrowing of Kwame Nkrumah in 1965. Cabral uh, gives the speech where he tries to sort of analyze, okay, well, what led to this... Uh, um, what led to this development and and he he seems to think that it has to do with uh, uh, a problem of ideological uh, inadequacy or underdevelopment and obviously cabral never thought of himself as a professional philosopher so, so that's really important i mean he never calls himself a philosopher but it doesn't follow from this that we cannot extract as it were 
you know, a, a clear philosophical orientation in his writing, which is uh, uh, sort of what I've been trying to do. Uh, and the other thing to note uh, is with respect to the question of communalism, uh, Cabral, for example, unlike uh, Julius Nyerere um, uh, in, Tan- in, uh, in Tanzania, or unlike uh, Leopold Senghor <coughs> or Kwame Nkrumah as well, he, he, he was sort of, uh, you don't really see him make references to communalism, so he's interesting in, in differing in that, that manner. And Cabral, one characteristic thing about his thought is that he, <coughs> he was sort of averse to being labeled. You know, there is definitely a clear, for example, Marxist influence on his writings, but yet he does not really call himself a Marxist. So uh, he's obviously influenced by Kwame Nkrumah. <coughs> and even when he criticizes, you know, so he sometimes indirectly criticizes people like Senghor. He never mentions them by name because he's also a diplomat, you know, he, he, needs, he needs support and... Uh, he doesn't want to antagonize people unnecessarily. And and one of the, the things that Cabral is really interested in thinking about is what kind of cultural elements contribute to the success of the liberation struggle and to the building of, of a just, you know, post-colonial society, independent post-colonial society. Um, so I, I'll, I'll leave it at there. Thank you. I'd like to pass over to Scarlett sort of raise and dispel some concerns about whether African philosophy is an oxymoron or rather tell us why it is. Yeah, hello. Um, Thank you so much, uh, guys, for being here. Um, Yeah, as Kay just said, we're almost going backwards a little now. Um, This podcast series is supposed to be an introduction to the uh, philosophy journal, Oxford Public Philosophy, um, and their new issue coming out. So um, lots of people listening to this podcast might necessarily not necessarily know that much about African philosophy, and uh, that's why we want to, you know, meet them where they are at right now. Um, so uh, I am just starting my uh, academic journey. Uh, I'm doing a master's in African studies at Oxford next year, um, and. All my tutors talked about undergrad was the danger of essentializing Africa. Um, They slammed it down our throats. And uh, this is, I think, led to the potentially rather crude uh, metaphilosophical question of whether we can even talk about an Africana philosophy. Um, It tends, I've watched lots of other podcasts and tends to be the question which is um, brought up first. and the concern, I guess, is, you know, are there enough similarities between the philosophical ideas that have just been spelled out in your great introductions um, and enough similarities between these cultural practices across the continent to meaningfully talk about uh, distinctly African philosophy? Um, obviously had this concern dispelled in quite a few different ways, um, but I was wondering how you two would go about it. And I thought maybe we could start with Professor Ochiang. Um uh, broadly, you know, why are we generally concerned about the essentialization of Africa? Why is that a concern that we have? Um, and how do we stop this concern leading us into questioning the existence of an African philosophy itself? All right, thank you, thank you. Um, that's really broad, okay, but I'll try my best and address it. Right. So, a quick word about essentialism. Right. Now, essentialism right, is the view that objects have a set of attributes that are necessary for their identity. In other words, it is the view that some properties of objects are essential to them, right? So the concept of an essential property 
is closely related to the concept of necessity, since to assert that a property is essential to an object is to say that the object necessarily has that property. That the property is essential. In a way, properties of an object that are not essential, in this sense, are said to be accidental. Now, the question of essentializing Africa has been a dominant theme in Western anthropological circles, though not unique to those circles. You see, Africa has been portrayed as a different other, not just a other, but a different other. Right? Western philosophy or European philosophy, according to a uh, historian, he was a historian from Democratic Republic of Congo by the name of Wamba Diawamba, argued that, you see, European philosophy essentially theorizes that difference, right? But not a positive other, but Africa is seen as a different other it is seen as a target, a colonizable target. Right? So according to Wamba, dear Wamba, European philosophy, from that point of view, has been a philosophy of peripheralization. That is terminology. And according to him, that has been the tragedy. It has been most unfortunate. Now, in response to that, right? Some Africans and Africanist scholars also have ended up essentializing Africa. All right? Ironically, right? They've ended up essentializing Africa. They ended up portraying Africa as having some essential attribute that are unique to it and punctuates it from Europe. This was basically the position that was advanced by the ethnological, ethnophilosophical approach to African philosophy. Right? The professional school, that is the professional trend in African philosophy, was actually opposed to the ethnophilosophical standpoint. The professional school is basically against essentializing Africa. They do not want to draw a deep and clear line of divide between European philosophy and African philosophy. The difference between the two philosophies, according to them, is accidental, is not essential. Right? So essentialization of Africa has, in a way, led to the view or given the impression that Africa is unitary in terms of its cultural and political practices. Okay? But nothing could be further from the truth, some would say. Africa is actually a land of diversity. In fact, in some quarters, Africa is arguably regarded as the most diverse continent in the world not just in terms of topography, but also linguistically, culturally, and even politically. So 
and in fact even recent studies right, also have it that the African continent has the highest level of genetic diversity in the world. Right? Now, however, despite the diversity, there is something I think which runs through Africa, at least in traditional Africa. This in my view is uh, often argued is the communal spirit or reflection. Most practices in traditional Africa, cultural, political, economic, could be explained in terms of the communal spirit. Right? They are a reflection, one would say, of the communal spirit. This is, for instance, what is called Ubuntu in Southern Africa, or Utu in Kiswahili in Central East Africa. John Beatty right, condenses the communal spirit very admirably, well, in a catchphrase. He says, the underpin of it is, I am because we are. And since we are, therefore, I am. Right? So in other words, it is the we which gives meaning to the I. Right? So some scholars have decried the fact that the communal spirit rampant in traditional Africa seem to have given very little consideration given very little consideration in modern Africa. You know that modern Africa has embraced you know the individualistic spirit right, at the expense of the communalistic spirit. So when you read Professional African philosophers like Kwasi Wiredu and uh, Polycap Equinobe, that is the position they take. Now, despite what I'm saying about communalism in traditional Africa, I never wish to be seen as essentializing Africa. Right? That the communal spirit is an that co the communal spirit is essential and unique characteristic to Africa and Africa alone. No, in fact, there are some good pieces, writings, which made efforts to show that some African practices, even in traditional Africa, were not communalistic. Right? So, for example, that explains the two faces, so to speak, of the thoughts in, for instance, Kwame Nkrumah or Julius Nyerere. Right? At some point they realize that no, uh, communalism is not a unique characteristic of Africa. In fact, there's also another scholar, I think the name is Henry Moriel, who actually argues the same, that no, there are actually flashes of individualism even in traditional Africa. So I always try to move away, despite the fact that I emphasize on the communal spirit in Africa, I never want to see it as uniquely Africa, that traditional Africa is all and all out communalistic. There are flashes of individualism. I'll stop there for the yard to add or subtract. <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much. Um, yeah, Zaya, do you have any, um, you know, addition to that? Would you say that this kind of communal spirit is 
um, allows us to talk about an Africana philosophy? Is that something which, um, you know, runs across all these different philosophical traditions? Uh, yeah, so uh, thank you so much. So, so to follow up on uh, what Professor Ocheng was, was saying, so I think, uh, yeah, the point I'll reiterate is uh, I think he drew a very important distinction between the question of the existence of an African philosophy and the question of uniqueness, uh, because I, I think that's really important. And you see people who uh, who really emphasize this, like the Ghanaian philosopher who was close to Nkrumah, William Abraham, <coughs> Who, who writes, and I, and I think, you know, this, this sort of also captures what uh, Professor Ocheng was saying, you know, the, the question of the existence of an African philosophy is, is not a uniqueness question, <coughs> uh, because you could think even if, if one takes communalism to, to be a, a predominant uh, element in, in African philosophy, we could also think of, you know, uh, examples in other parts of the world where communalism is, is very significant. So you could think of, you know, Maybe, and I don't know, uh, I don't know about this context, but just to give an example in, in sort of um, uh, Thailand or, or any, any other place, right? It could be that, uh, again, communalism is significant there. Uh, and the question I'm interested in is uh, how do we, because Professor Ching made a really important point about how do we identify this as a significant trend while also understanding that we don't, we don't mean to essentialize. And I think one way to do this is to look at the conditions which, you know, the, the kind of uh, historical, social, political and economic conditions which give rise to communalism as, as a kind of uh, intellectual orientation and to see how sort of changes in these uh, conditions uh, lead to changes in, in, in the, the philosophical orientations of different peoples because uh, obviously if we look at, uh, Professor Ocheng was uh, just talking about the diversity of the African continent, we could also note, you know, the, 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 the kind of <clears throat> diversity at the level of history even. So uh, uh, according to, to, to some uh, economic and social historians, uh, if you look at uh, uh, the, the sort of big West African empires in, in the medieval period, so Mali and so on, there were processes there, and this is something that Cabral hints were, you know, uh, the, the, the kind of village community was subjected to tremendous pressure because there was this sort of tribu tributary state power that was uh, imposing uh, certain pressures on it, which led to uh, a process of change and transformation. So I, I think we have to also look at uh, different social dynamics. That, that would be uh, a way, I think, that allows us to identify certain properties while also keeping in mind the history and the fact that there are these social processes. Um, and to, to return to very quickly uh, uh, about Scarlett's point about, okay, so uh, why are we worrying about the question of essentialism? Because I think if you look at it uh, uh, from a political standpoint, and this was a clear motivation as well in, in the, the, the kind of the critique of the professional school of ethno-philosophers, so especially in Poulain Hontonji's critique, where he had political worries. He said, look, if you say having this set of views <clears throat> is necessary, for example, to be an African philosopher, then you could see how this could be used to sort of pressure different people uh, to uh, prevent them from expressing their views and so on. Uh, yeah, and I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you so much, both of you. That was, um, yeah, I think a really nice um, introduction to some of the problems and really grounded in um, the kind of things we want to be speaking about. 
Um, yeah, so obviously we started off there talking a little bit about, um, you know, how essentialism has been utilised against against the continent. Um, and a rather interesting parallel that I saw in, in Zayad's paper on the Lotus is um, the question of, another question of kind of isolationism. So on the one hand, we have essentialism, we have this kind of um, tool saying Africans are all the same. And on the other hand, you have this seemingly contradictory tool saying African nations are all very different and all have a distinctive national culture. Um, and so therefore can't meaningfully support each other. And this has been a, another tool kind of supported um, by, by the West against Africa. Um, and uh, in Zayed's paper, you obviously you talk about um, this understanding of nationalism as internationalism. So to be to belong to a particular African nation is to stand is to stand in solidarity with other oppressed peoples. Um, and I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about this and you know maybe speculate on how it is that the the West has so well managed to use these two very contradictory perspectives um, so well to kind of fight down um, uh, you know the political insurgents and stuff in in African states. Uh, yeah, so, so very briefly, I, I actually think that the question of um, difference is, is related to the question of othering of the African continent. Because think of the way, for example, that the, the discourse of tribalism was used. Uh, so the discourse of tribalism <clears throat> was used precisely to, to sort of posit these divisions, uh, uh, make it seem as if, you know, uh, creating a sort of uh, independent state would be difficult, would lead to, you know, civil wars and so on, but also that other, that different states would not support each other. But, I mean, really, if, if and, and this is sort of a critique that was developed by a lot of people, but specifically by Archie Mafeji, uh, uh, who, who, who wrote about uh, the ideology of tribalism in a critical way, uh, critiquing Western anthropological thinking along these lines. Uh, because many of uh, uh, many of the the traits that Western anthropologists have been using to to refer to specific tribes, for instance, could also you know we could redescribe them in terms of nation, right? So nobody talks about Belgium, for example, having different tribes. They talk you know a kind of there is a kind of French-speaking national population if we're thinking of language as as sort of the designator, and then there is the Flemish or, or Dutch-speaking uh, element, but nobody will talk about sort of you know tribalism in Belgium. So there is a sense in which this othering of the African continent has led to the utilization of this discourse where <clears throat> uh, instead of talking about nations, people uh, talk about tribes. And if you talk about nations, then uh, a lot of these problems, they, they don't seem so intractable because almost every state in the world is, is a multinational state. I mean, the, the, that's just what it is to build a modern state is to, is to build a multinational state. Um, yeah, so, so with respect to Lotus, uh, very, very briefly, I mean, what I found, and obviously I have to say that, you know, I'm only speaking about very specific intellectuals who contributed to Lotus, who uh, were contributing in this moment of, uh, you know, the development of Afro-Asianism in the aftermath of the Bandung Conference in 1955. So I, I don't want to, you know, generalize it. But you had people, African intellectuals like uh, Joseph Kizerbo, uh, uh, Alex Leguma, <coughs> Uh, people who are really interested in thinking, okay, is, is all nationalism a form of chauvinism? Because that's the question I was interested in. And I found in the thought of those people that they were thinking of uh, nationalism 
uh, not in terms of you know a kind of chauvinistic blood and soil discourse but really as to be a kind of uh, nationalist in this context in this particular historical moment is to participate in a kind of progressive political project that's 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 really the kind of necessary condition and some of them thought it was sufficient even that it didn't really matter if you were born somewhere else and moved to that state yeah so so i'll stop there because i don't want to speak for too long uh, but that's an excellent question thank you thank you thank you very much um yeah so i think we're going to move on a little bit now to um another kind of metaphilosophical question which got uh touched on a little bit earlier by by professor Ochiang. um kind of so uh, a common kind of layman criticism of much Western philosophy is that it's uh, very divorced from reality and not very applicable at the practical level. Um, and obviously, as Professor Ocheng said earlier, it's often been uh, African African philosophy has often been conceived of as something which is much more interested in practice, um, kind of embedded in practice. Um, and uh, this criticism I was reading uh, broadly across some of uh, Professor Ocheng's publications and. Uh, it reminds me of some discussions about different conceptions of reason in uh, in Senghu. Um And so the claim is that in the pursuit of knowledge, uh, the European tradition uh, kind of alienates itself from the object of knowledge and treats it as another. Um, and so the subject, the, the European, is then free to kind of conquer the object and use uh, the object of knowledge to its own interests. Um, conversely, says Senghu, um, in the African tradition, uh, reason is more synthetic, it's not antagonistic. The goal is to, he says, to intermingle with the object with the hope that it kind of discloses its being. Um, and I was just wondering if you think this is a useful way of conceptualizing some of the problems with Western philosophical methodology and uh, highlighting the benefits of a more practical approach to philosophy. And, you know, whether you think that we should be speaking about African philosophy as this more practical approach. Yes. So that brings us to the question of um, the nature of philosophy, what philosophy is. Right? Um, of course, you see, we are often told, and I'm also uh, guilty of that, I used to tell my first year students, you know, that philosophy is a discipline where human reason is at its highest, rarefied, you know, where you you are critical of everything. Uh, you don't take anything for granted. You don't assume. You ask questions, right? When you see something, you ask questions. Keep asking questions. You're supposed to be critical. In other words, it's where thinking as is at its highest. And perhaps that's why uh, they call this highest degree a degree in philosophy, PhD. Because right? they believe that you know, you've identified a problem in whichever area it is, whether it's medicine, law, whatever, you've identified a problem, you've undertaken research, thought through it, right, and arrived at a conclusion, at a thesis. So they give you a degree in philosophy, PhD. Right? So in other words, the emphasis is on thinking, you know. And I've often argued that because of that emphasis, you know, I think philosophers, at least some, seem to have lost their way. They tend to think for the sake of thinking. So in other words, they are more focused on this criticality, you know, thinking critically, being logical, right? So that, you see, your conclusion 
should follow from the premises. You give premises which lead to the conclusion. In other words, in philosophy, emphasis for some of us seem to be on validity of your reasoning, of your argument, rather than the soundness, right? So in other words, the concern is not that whether the conclusion is actually true, right? but they're concerned with hypothetical truth, that if the premises are true, if, not that they are true, if they are true, then they would lead, the conclusion would also be true. Uh, so the emphasis is on validity rather than on soundness. And you see, that's why I've often said, I don't know if any of you have encountered it, Usually at times when I introduce myself and say, um, I teach philosophy, you know, they would look at me and say, well, you are different, you know, because <laughs> they see philosophers as troublemakers, right? You can't say anything. When you say anything, it starts questioning you, starts asking you. And you see, that's how some of us operate, you know. Whenever somebody says anything, you keep asking. So they see you as a troublemaker, you know. and people who live in an ivory tower, you know, people who are very theoretical, not concerned with the practical, pragmatic aspect of things, which is really unfortunate. Because in truth, as Odera emphasizes in his book, in truth, philosophy should be about life, good living, not just, you shouldn't just leave it up there in that the theoretical level. And you see, that's why, in a sense, therefore, even his, the notion of philosophic sagacity, you know, he's, he's emphasizing more on the practicality of reasoning, the wisdom part of it. You don't just reason for the sake of reasoning, but it should be focused towards some kind of utility. And you see, essentially, that's what even Sengo says when he's making that distinction. But you see, in Western philosophy, right, the thinking is, you know, you s distinguish yourself. You separate yourself, the subject, from the object, right? And then you put it at a distance and you start dissecting it, cutting it, whatnot, as a way of understanding it, right? There's a distance as opposed to the African worldview, where the subject is part and parcel of the object. The subject does not tear himself away from the object. So the subject actually gets to understand the object not by dissecting it, not by putting a distance between him or her and the object and dissecting it as a way of understanding it, but since you are part and parcel of everything, you get to know it through feeling it, through touching it, you know? That's how cognition takes place because that distinction is not there. So there's some element of practical utility to it, right? As opposed to those of us who, you know, theorize too much and operate at a rarefied level, which is very unfortunate. And you see, that's generally what the lay person thinks of a philosopher. Right? When, you told, when you are told that person is a philosopher, they see you as somebody different. Right? His, his thinking is, is a bit different from the way other persons think. All right, I'll, I'll stop there. Zed, 
Yes, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I mean, I, uh, uh, in, in terms of this distinction uh, of, of the practical and the theoretical, uh, yes, I, I mean, I think there is also the, the, uh, the specific historical context, because um, if you look at, you know, and, and Professor Cheng knows much more about this than I do, but I'll, I'll just mention it. If you look at sort of the historical context of the emergence of, uh, if you want to call it modern uh, uh, professional academic philosophy on the African continent, it's obviously taking place in the context of either, you know, the, the post-independence struggles, you know, kind of development uh, uh, development programs and debates about the best path to development and all of that. So there was also a demand on not just philosophers, but on intellectuals in general to show to people, okay, this is why this is relevant, um, which, which, which isn't, which isn't uh, uh, something that we can describe, I think, as good and bad, independent of context, because obviously under some circumstances it could be used to, to, to stifle certain lines of thinking. Um, uh, the, the other thing is, uh, I, I mean, I, I think it's interesting that uh, when we do this comparative analysis of uh, Western and African philosophy, I think it's important that we don't also, um, that we also question the self-image of Western philosophy as well, right? We don't take it as something pre-given that's already there, because obviously you had this, you have uh, historical processes that explain canon formation. So uh, you also have, you know, <clears throat> we, uh, uh, tremendous diversity, right, in, in Western philosophy. So think of like, uh, and I'm going to do very crude things, but but just to, to, to illustrate uh, the point. So think of historical versus a historical philosopher. So like Hegel versus Spinoza, for example. Uh, struggles over what counts as knowledge in early modern England. So you had like the experimental philosophers, so uh, Boyle, uh, in opposition to Hobbes, who, who thought of demonstrative knowledge uh, as sort of the paradigmatic knowledge, geometry was his model. And then you also have like, you know, enlightenment philosophers and then counter-enlightenment philosophers. You have, you have also like philosophical romantics, right, who, uh, who uh, also took issue with this idea that we should sort of dissect the world and, and, uh, uh, and, and assume that there is this sort of chasm between subject and object and that we have to... Uh, uh, manipulate nature in a certain way to understand it. <clears throat> so there is this tremendous diversity, and I think this is why it's also important to to give room to diversity in African philosophy, because you know maybe uh, uh, some 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 African philosophers who only want to do philosophy of logic, and already Professor Cheng mentioned that he works on philosophy of logic as well. Um, uh, so I I think it we should definitely be you know uh, allow room for people with different interests people who don't necessarily want to or, or think that they don't have anything to contribute to ethical discourse for example i think that's fine you know not everybody has this uh, proclivity or or uh, uh, the ability to to intervene in in, in practical debates uh, and i'll uh, i'll stop there thank you I, I, I want to i want to add something to that right um okay um I just want to throw some caution, right? In that, um, from what I said, it should not be interpreted to mean that I'm saying that Western philosophy is all critical and does not concern itself with the practical, whereas African philosophy is concerned with the practical. No, not as such. Well, even in the West, in Western philosophy, 
there are various theories of knowledge, right? So, for instance, th there's a broad category between the analytic school, right? Analytic school of philosophy, where they emphasize a lot on this thinking. But also, within still Western philosophy, you have those who fall are in love with hermeneutics, right? Existentialism. Those are very pragmatic and practical, so to speak. Just as much as also, I think, in Africa, you'll find some persons who are very theoretical and rarefied in their thinking. Right? So it's not a question of one is this, the other one is that. No, simply a question of emphasis. I just wanted to caution on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you so much, both of you. Uh, it's a really brilliant um, and pretty in-depth introduction to uh, some of the ideas. Um, uh, so I think we're going to move over to Kay's uh, first section now, um, which is going a little bit more in-depth into some of the ideas which you guys have brought up. Um, yeah, over to Kay. Thank you, Skylet. Now we're going to take a closer look at each of your scholarly work. Um, beginning with Henry Odero Aruka's idea of philosophical sagacity, which Ocheng, you mentioned earlier. So Ocheng, please could you start us off by outlining Aruka's concept of sagacity? And what does it mean to be a philosophical sage? Right, thank you, thank you again. Uh, now, um, you see, Odero's concern was that uh, some philosophers right, seem to be very theoretical in their thinking. Right? And that's why he came up with this concept of philosophic sagacity, or sage philosophy, as some people would put it. Right? Because um, within that trend of philosophic sagacity, the position is that philosophy does not start and end in modern Africa. Traditional Africa are also their thinkers in traditional Africa. But those thinkers are not professionally trained philosophers. They are not like Odero Ruka, they are not like Kwasiwiredu, they are not like um, uh, Pauline Hontonji, they are not like, uh, you know, the trained philosophers, no. But they are nevertheless critical independent thinkers or most precisely they are sages. Right? And of course, initially, Odera Oroka defined a sage as a person, could be man or woman, not limited to man, right, the way some people think, right? Uh, either man or woman who is grounded in the wisdoms and customs of his or her people, right? And therefore, he or she acts as a mirror of that society, right? So that if you want to know any aspect of the customs or cultures of the people, then the sage would be able to tell you that this is how it is, right? Okay, so that's the sage. Or more accurately, a folk sage. He says that's the folk sage. Right? But there are other sages who, besides being grounded in the wisdoms of the community, they are nevertheless 
critical, independent thinkers. They go beyond sagacity. In other words, they have this capability of interrogating and discussing issues pertaining to their customers. And in some cases, the philosophic sages actually reject some aspects of their customs, especially those which do not satisfy their rational scrutiny. Right? So in other words, being a sage does not make you philosophical, and being philosophical does not make you a sage, but the ideal is to combine the two. Now, his concern as well was that, you see, um, of course, I've written a paper, several papers, trying to explain the rationale or the aims of sagacity. And I've often categorized them as three. Right? Uh, I usually call it the epistemic. There's the epistemic aim, the academic aim, and the cultural naturalist aim. Right? But I'm more interested now in the epistemic aim. Right? You see, the problem is that in Africa now, though I think I'll have an opportunity to say a lot more in some minutes to come later on, right? uh, you know, most persons in Africa today do not know much about their customs and cultures because they've actually adopted the foreign cultures. So they are more grounded in foreign cultures rather than their own culture. And you see, Odera's worry in a way was that no, these aspects need to be documented and you know, put down on paper so that they could be discussed even at the academic level. Right? So that was one of the aims Odera Oruka had in mind, besides the culturist one, which was supposed to bring this national culture. So, so that, in a nutshell, was Odera's concern with sage philosophy. Okay, thank you for that summary of what it is to be a sage. Um, I think we should zoom in on what you say you're most interested in at the moment, which is that epistemic aim. So it sounds as though Aruka took, in this case, various Kenyan beliefs and practices to be a worldview or to have a worldview underpinning them. And he saw sages almost as taps, as individuals who could give him access to this worldview through dialogue. So firstly, is that right? And secondly, what is it for a philosophy to underpin a worldview or a set of practices? Okay, right. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, okay, you see, so for instance, Kenya, right? Kenya is, um, as I said actually earlier, you know, Africa is a land of diversity. So, for instance, in Kenya, there are 44 plus ethnic groups, right? different ethnic groups, or some would call them tribes, but I never like using the word tribes. I, I prefer using ethnic groups, right? So, there are about 44 plus ethnic groups. Right? Some books would put it as 40, some 42, some 44, some 45. 46, uh, but it's over 40. Right? And their customs and cultures are in a way quite distinct, in a way. There are some distinctions here and there. Right? So that you see, for instance, Odera belonged to the Luo ethnic group. 
are just the same ethnic group that I come from, the Luo, right? Uh, so you find that if I want to know something about another ethnic group, for instance, the Kikuyu, for instance, or the Kamba, or even the Maasai, you see, I would have to go to someone who knows it, and this someone would be the sage in that community. He's the one who would be able to explain to me what their customs, their culture is. But if the sage is philosophic as well, right, he would be able not just to tell me what the customs are, but the reasons underlying the customs. That is, why the customs are the way they are, and not otherwise. Right? A philosophic sage would be able to rationalize over that, give you the reason why it is that way. Right? So, for instance, um, you see, amongst the Luo, for instance, the, the, the ethnic community which I come from, right? you'll find that uh, we usually remove the six lower teeth, right? the six lower teeth, the is it called the incisors? Right? Six of them as a rite of passage from uh, initiation into adulthood, right? Okay? It's more or less like circumcision for us, right? You get the six teeth removed. Of course, the custom is dying now, right? But 50, 100 years back, it was the in thing, okay? So that's the custom. But you see, a sage will tell you all that, but a philosophic sage will give you the reason why the Luos do that, right? Most people don't know. Because, you know, interestingly, with customs, when something becomes customary, so to speak, People just do it, do it, but they forget the reason behind it. Right? But the sages, the philosophic sages would know. So for instance, the reason why Luos did that was that um, I think about 150 years ago, about a century and a half ago, amongst the Luo, there was this disease, lockjaw disease, lockjaw, where your jaws would just lock and cannot open. Right? And of course, so many people were dying because of that, because you can't be fed. Right? You know, is when they said that, oh, what we could do is remove the sixth lower teeth and then serve the person porridge. And they survived. And with time, they said, all right, now, it became a custom that, okay, as initiation into adulthood, you remove the sixth teeth. So that in case this disease comes again, then we are safe. Right? So you see, a sage would tell you all that, a philosophic sage, but you see, the ordinary Lua would not know that. Right? So the sages would actually go beyond the practice and try to give you the reason why it is the way it is. Right? And hence, the need and importance of philosophic sages, so to speak. And of course, as... Um, also, the other aim of philosophic sagacity, especially Odera's 1976 project, right? the aim was to come up with a national culture, a Kenyan national culture, to unify the Kenyans. Right? So the idea was that we would undertake researches in all the communities 
and then get the philosophic sages sit down right try to harmonize harmonize those aspects which are in conflict and based on that harmonization a national culture would be constructed of course we are still very far away from that right i'll stop there maybe there are questions i'll i'll entertain questions if any <laughs> so to sort of reflect back um you've given us this example of the practice of removing the incisors the lower incisors and i think you mentioned oruka in the first project and the second project he he interviewed sages and philosophical sages and so you've given us that a definition of what it is for a philosophy to underlie a practice which is to contain the reasons for that practice so the interviews that he conducted were a way of accessing the reasons for a particular practice one thing i think is interesting about this also in relation to sort of modernity is is the emphasis that it places on critical thought um but critical thought as a as a practice of evaluating and keeping alive the reasons for traditions um you mentioned the 1976 project so i think we'll move on to a, another question about that um so i have a quotation here um from one of your papers um where you say aruka intended his project of interviewing philosophical sages to remedy philosophical naivety which he saw as a major threat and danger to the development of authentic national culture in modern kenya so um could we please unpack together this quotation um and i think a starting point would be what does he mean by philosophical naivety because superficially it could refer to a sort of a state of africa or a belief about african philosophy yeah all right thank you thank you for that now um philosophical naivety yes right now you see philosophy is sometimes taken as the heritage of greeks right and thus some of us treat it as a typical european activity right so the so called what i refer to as the western discourse on africa not only gave birth to that attitude uh, but it has continued to perpetuate that belief despite african responses to the contrary at the western discourse on africa as I outlined it in my text trends and issues in african philosophy and masolo also in his i think uh, african philosophy in search of identity you know portrays you know that western discourse on africa portrays africa as a continent innocent of philosophical thought and because of that attitude right, that philosophy in the proper sense is european that is autochthonous to europe and alien to africa a good number of people who have heard to say or write anything about or on african philosophy have done so with remarkable naivety right 
with a lot of innocence and ignorance. So, within philosophical circles, those who embraced the Western discourse on Africa were, according to Dero Ruka, misguided. They were misguided. They exhibited naivety by denying philosophical mode of thought to Africans. That is what he refers to as philosophical naivety. That is thinking that philosophy, that the philosophical mode of thought is a reserve of Europe, not to be found in Africa. So the question then becomes, how is it a threat to the development of national culture in Kenya? That would be the question. Or other nation states in Africa. Right? Now, uh, culture, Odera Oroka argued, culture has two sides to it, two facets, theoretical and practical. Right? The practical is the visible aspect of culture. It includes music, things like music, dance, fashion, you know, and various other visible aspects of culture. The theoretical, the theoretical consists of the reasons that justify the various practical aspects of culture. And the two, the theoretical and practical, are inseparable. Odera rightfully argued. In some sense, one can say that the theoretical is the pedestal upon which the practical is anchored. Or stated slightly differently, the theoretical is the metaphysical anchor of the practical. Right? Philosophical naivety separates the theoretical and practical aspects of culture with respect to Africa, right? in that it denies Africa the theoretical. One could say, or say, therefore, that the persons who operate within the confines of philosophical naivety sees African culture and its philosophy as a lived experience not a myriad of concepts to be pictured and rationalized by the mind. Such a person sees philosophy in Africa as an inseparable part of the concrete of culture as Africans feel and live it and not an entity to be isolated and discussed. So, as a detailed mental activity and exercise, philosophy has, according to this position, no place in African culture. And therein lies the danger. Right? A culture without a clear philosophy is actually incomplete and vulnerable to every foreign ism or value, no matter how disgusting they may be, right? And according to Dero Ruka, that was one of the biggest threat to the various African cultures. And he believed that one sure way to avoid the invasion of foreign 
uh, invasion by foreign ideas is for a nation to develop and articulate the philosophy of its culture so that when these foreign isms come in they'll have to contend with the theoretical aspect of the culture but you see in the absence of that theoretical when these isms come they find a vacuum and they just fit in very easily so philosophical naivety in Odera's view was dangerous to African cultures in that sense thank you so to reiterate then philosophical naivety is a mistaken belief that African philosophy does not exist or that traditional cultures do not have a philosophy and Aruka wants to defend against people believing that so is it fair to say that he's is he perhaps most concerned with philosophical naivety as a reflexive belief that Africans would have about their own supposed lack of theoretical basis yeah there's there's that too there's that too right because you see this western discourse on Africa uh, was 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 and still is quite strong to an extent that even the Africans some Africans have actually assimilated it, belief in it so th and that even is now doubly dangerous to African customs and cultures so to finish unpacking this quotation, now that we know what philosophical naivety is, I'd like to turn to how he saw it as a threat and how he hoped to combat it. So there's this phrase, what he thinks is threatened is the development of authentic national culture in modern Kenya. It seems clear to me why Oruka thought he had unlaughed an authentically Kenyan philosophy because he'd been interviewing Kenyan sages about their own practices. So there's the authenticity is clear. But the word authentic sort of might suggest essentialism. And to return to a theme we flagged up earlier, there's the preoccupation with the danger of essentialism. So I'd like to sort of dispel that here. So how would you respond to someone who reads this and dismisses it or labels it an essentialist okay, position? Let me come in first before the yard comes in. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it is uh, when you read Odera closely, um, that, that would the, the idea of his concept being essentialist you know is relegated in the backstage because really all that he's saying is that you see these customs these practices have a philosophical basis right? so what he wants to do is have these unearthed you know, brought out in the fall because a good number of them are just implicit, are underground. So the idea is to unearth them, have them explicated, right? Have the sages, of course, some of them would be in conflict, right? Because there are 44 ethnic groups. Some of them would be in conflict. But after they've been unearthed, the sages, the sages from the various communities would sit down to harmonize those aspects which are in conflict right but then even as they do that the idea is not and this is very important odera is not saying that there's no space for foreign values or foreign customs he's not saying that he's simply saying that okay 
let's have the African, these African aspects of it, and anything which comes from outside, which adds to it or is consistent to it, then that's fine. His concern was that, you see, there are some aspects, which foreign aspects, which just come in, which are distasteful, right? but which find space because the theoretical aspect is missing. So I think he gave examples such as, basically within medicine, for instance, he says, you know, there are so many things like, uh, uh, okay, though that's technological morality, right? He gives, you see, this idea of uh, sagging pants, you know, the pants sagging, you see, uh, the, uh, the young ones, you know, like, especially the men, right? Young teenagers, right? they walk around with their pants sagging very low. With, you know, you can see their underwears, their innerwears and whatnot. And you see, it's now very fashionable, even in Africa, amongst the young ones. But you see, whatever I would say, you see, what's the benefit of something like this, you see? But you see, it is finding space and very popular because there's uh, the theoretical aspect is not well established. Because if the theoretical had been well established, then it would check such undesirable elements. But the desirable ones, which would add, would come in. So in other words, he's not essentializing, so to speak. It's only that, um, and here again, maybe I'll go back to Nokroma, you see. When you read Nokroma in his Conscientism, I think one of the chapters, he says that, you see, Africa, modern Africa has three segments, Euro-Christian, traditional Africa, and the Islamic, right? And those three are competing. He right? calls them competing ideologies in modern Africa. And it's making life very difficult in Africa because those three ideologies are complete competing. Each wants to be the dominant one, right? There's the Islamic one which wants to dominate, but then there's the Euro-Christian one also which wants to be the dominant one, and then there's the traditional African one which is also wants to be dominant. So Nkrumah argued that no, the ideal is to get the best or the good from all these three. It doesn't matter, right? Get the good from all the three, harmonize them. But of course, you also have emphasized that the pedestal should be African traditions. In other words, the African personality, so t as he puts it. But he does not say that you discard everything Euro-Christian. So it's, it's, it, that's the way in which Odera is seeing sage philosophy as a vehicle to national, to constructing national culture, if that makes sense. It certainly does. I think you write about this at the end of your article that we'll link in the notes, that he envisaged this discursive process where sages from different ethnic groups would rationally discuss their philosophies and try to harmonize them. Um, and I suppose you could extrapolate from that and say that in the sphere of politics or education, um, having an articulated philosophy and knowing the reasons for certain traditional practices would make it possible to have debates and to evaluate them and cultivate the, a, a society that 
meets the needs of the people living in it. Whereas if you don't have that, you don't have the words to, to discuss. Zaya, did, did you have something to add? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, 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 yeah. I, I think there is an overlap again with uh, to connect it to sort of uh, uh, the, the the overlaps between, for example, uh, Uruka's uh, understanding of culture and maybe Cabral's understanding of culture. Uh, again, I mean, so, so the thing that Cabral is concerned with is uh, being able to assess the relative utility or disutility of of foreign uh, of foreign ideas, foreign institutions, and so on. So, so again, it's not really a question of rejecting something that's foreign, but understanding that you know uh, the mere fact that it's associated with you know a kind of prestigious power center. So, if it comes from like the former metropolis, so if you're like in, in and formerly French colonized from Paris or something, or if, you know, you're in uh, Cairo or Nairobi, then it's London or something that this idea that, you know, just because it comes from <coughs> a certain place that's associated with prestige because of, of these uh, historical uh, relations of colonialism, that we have to be able to sort of discriminate. Uh, uh, and so that that extent, I think the two approaches are not essentialists. Uh, it's, it's, it's also a reaction, I think, to the manner in which, especially after independence, uh, uh, some of the elite ru ruling groups took on these foreign, so almost all these foreign elements without critical assessment uh, and sort of propagated them as, as cultural elements uh, th that should be just assimilated by uh, by everybody. So, and, and so in a sense, it's really a kind of the basic demand of philosophy, right? Articulated in a specific historical context, which is, okay, we have to be able to give justifications for our acceptance or rejection of some element we cannot simply accept it or reject it you know uh, just because everybody's doing it or something like that uh, so to that extent it's really you know the expression of what people would think of as just like the regular classical philosophic spirit uh, in a specific historical context yes if if i may add something right to what they added i said i agree with what they had said 100 percent. that's true and uh, I also want to bring to our attention that, you see, in Africa, um, the colonialists, you know, especially the British, used the divide and rule policy right? uh, when, during the colonial times. So, for instance, in Africa, Kenya, for instance, you know, they played those ethnic groups against each other those 44 ethnic groups, the Britons played them against each other. Right? Uh, they played the Kikuyus against the Luos, the Luos against the Luyas, the Luyas against the Maasais, you know, so as to perpetuate their, their rule, so to speak. Right? So their policy of divide and rule worked very, very well. And it is still reflected, even up to today, Kenya is over f has had its political independence for over 50 years. It was in 1963, but that ethnicity, you know, tribalism is still there right, because of that what the Britons did during the colonial rule. So that you find that in Kenya, for instance, with the introduction of multi-parties, right, which is something nice, right? Okay, it served democracy very well. But you find that the introduction of multi-partisan in Kenya, for instance, those there are several parties, 
but those parties are ethnic based. Right? You find that the, this particular ethnic group has their party, this other one has theirs. So that you see, when it comes to elections, you realize in Kenya, for instance, elections are usually a very difficult period because that's when the tension, you know, these parties, you know, you know, they fight, you know, they kill each other, whatnot, and even after elections, they never accept the results, they fight and whatnot, because of that ethnicity, you know, which was instilled during the colonial days. And you see, that was one thing which really troubled Odera Oroka, you know, that each time Kenya gets round elections, there would always be tension amongst the, because there was nothing unifying Kenyans. And you see even the way the boundaries in Africans in Africa was made left a lot to be desired. So for instance in Kenya, I come I belong to the Luo ethnic group, but you find that the Luos are in Kenya, some are in Uganda, some are in Tanzania, some are found in Sudan, even Ethiopia. Okay? But you see so in Kenya you find that the Luo in Kenya feels closer to the Luo in Uganda than to a Kikuyu who is a Kenyan like him. Right? Or a Choli in Uganda feels closer to a Luo in Kenya than to a Banyarwanda in Uganda. So the aim of philosophic sagacity was to unify, bring some kind of unity within African nation states. Well, this is a perfect segue, I think, into now focus, turning to focus on Cabral and Zeod on your work on him. Um, because as you mentioned earlier, um, Cabral, like Oruka, and probably like most philosophers, if we're honest, developed theoretical ideas in response to a concrete situation. And one strand that relates very closely to what we've been looking at in Oruka's work is his conception of authenticity and his theory of culture. So Zayad, could you please speak for a few minutes about, um, first of all, what is this discourse of cultural modernism that you reference from Taiwo? And then why you think Cabral is a cultural modernist? Uh, r right, yeah, uh, thank you so much. So in, in terms of the, the, the kind of framing philosophical uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, structure, so, so if, if we take the philosophical discourse of modernity, and here I'm following Olufemi Taiwo's account in his How Colonialism Preempted Modernity in Africa, uh, uh, which I think was published in 2010. Uh, so, so Taiwo identifies three elements of the philosophical discourse of modernity, and my argument in, in the in the in the paper which was published on Cabral's philosophy of culture was precisely that we find those three principles instantiated in Cabral's uh, thinking. So the three principles very uh, uh, very succinctly are so uh, the principle of subjectivity. So, so there is this idea that what distinguishes modernity as a historical epoch and as a philosophical discourse, uh, is the axiological importance assigned to an individual's ability to choose to do with, uh, to choose uh, what to do with their lives? Uh, so this idea of self-determination. Some people, you know, if they're 
sort of Kantians, they, they speak about it in terms of self-legislation. <coughs> um, and, and I argue, in, in, if, if you look at Cabral's sort of directives in the context of the party, he thinks of uh, the party's role as basically helping people set up structures that would enable them to, to govern themselves. Uh, uh, and the, the second element is, uh, Taiwo calls it the centrality of reason. So um, uh, by that, I mean that for the subject of modernity, any given you know set of institutions, webs of beliefs or practices can be regarded as legitimate only if and only one can produce reasons, good reasons that justify its existence. So uh, think about it this way. The fact that an institution or belief has always existed uh, it's inherited, for example, is not regarded as, as sufficient for its justification. Uh, now, a call, uh, you, you know, a consequence of this idea is that modern science, insofar as it embodies human rationality, is an important evaluative standard. Uh, you know, when it comes to assessing beliefs that you know uh, seek or purport to describe the natural world, uh, and the third element is is the belief in progress. So. Uh, uh, by that, I just mean that individuals and societies. Uh, uh, that believe in progress as a kind of normative ideal are future are primarily future and uh, oriented in the sense that they consciously seek to change their social environment for the better. <clears throat> so this means that uh, their orientation towards existing institutions is not primarily one of preservation. Uh, it's not a rejection of preservation, but it, it it's almost this attempt to always seek to improve. Uh, existing social arrangements and basically i argue that in cabral you see all these three elements in his thought uh, he doesn't lay it out explicitly but when you read through uh, his various concrete pronouncements and analyses of specific situations you find that he more or less adheres to these views so uh, what does that mean for culture briefly <clears throat> so so that means i think for cabral that he has this uh, historical view of culture he sees it as something that changes as a function of time um, uh, and he sees it as something that can be changed based on, you know, collective goals that people agree upon. Uh, uh, and to this extent, he's sort of tying it to uh, a specific political project. I mean, obviously, his specific context was a war of national liberation. I mean, we, we should keep that in mind. Uh, but but here is, here is the, the, the kind of interesting historical context. So why is Cabral sort of... Uh, emphasizing that culture can change and that uh, uh, we shouldn't have these essentialist views because if you look at what the Portuguese were doing, so a lot of the pe leading people in the PAIGC were uh, uh, from Cape Verde and there was already, uh, Professor Ochiang mentioned the, this colonial uh, ploy of attempting to divide and rule essentially, so uh, the, the, the Portuguese government ha had sort of presented the Cape Verdeans as relatively privileged relative to uh, other people who live on the mainland in Guinea-Bissau. <clears throat> and Cabral was of Cape Verdean descent, and so, were, so was most of the leadership. But <clears throat> So the Portuguese would essentially claim that, you know, Cabral is not a real... Uh, um, uh, bissau Guinean. he's not really a, really a real member of that community. Uh, because, for example, he doesn't spe speak Balanta, for example, then, you know, they say, look, you know, he's, he's just, he's speaking in either Creole or Portuguese. Uh, and Cabral says, look, well, what's significant in our context isn't, you know, the language that I speak, what's significant is, okay, the kind of contribution that you're making, you know, uh, to, to, to free your people from uh, under colo colonial rule in this specific context, because there were, the Portuguese would essentially have these 
counter political organizations that they would foster who uh, would sort of use the banner of authenticity to undermine the PIGC. Uh, so, so that's sort of like a very brief uh, uh, overview of the historical context. Is it fair to say then that Cabral's conception of what it is to be authentic is linked to rationality and to national autonomy? Yes, yes. So I, I, I would say so. I mean, Cabral doesn't really use the discourse of authenticity. He, so he talks about a return to the roots, which which isn't, uh, which I, I don't think is necessarily the same thing as a as question of authenticity. Uh, but definitely there is this idea <coughs> uh, that uh, to be really, you know, so he makes, okay, I'll give you an example. He makes this distinction between somebody who belongs to the population and somebody who belongs to the people. So for him, you belong to a population if, you know, you're born in Guinea-Bissau. Okay, that, that's just, that, that's a fact. You know, you're part of that population. Uh, and that's a fact that you have no control over. You're just born there. Uh, but belonging to the people, he said, is sort of when you participate in this collective struggle for liberation. Uh, um, so you could conceivably be a member of the population and not be a member of the people, uh, according to that distinction. Uh, and vice versa, you could be a member of, uh, of uh, you know, you could belong to the people by participating in the struggle, even though you were born somewhere else, maybe born in Senegal, maybe born in um, uh, whatever, you know. Okay, thank you. There's one more distinction, actually, that we'd like you to explain before we move on to the next section, which is this distinction you um, find in Cabral between cultural influence and cultural domination. And I think there's a there's a nice comparison to be made with um, the idea of defending culture against foreign values. Before I, before he comes in, if I may make a comment, I I like that distinction between being a member of the population and being a member of the people. It's a nice distinction. It has made me th thinking, right? In the sense that you see, I was born in Uganda, so it means I'm a member of the Ugandan population. Right? But actually, I'm a member of the Kenyan people. Uh, I just thought I wanted to share that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, that's, that's, that's sort of precisely what that distinction is, is supposed to draw. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy that uh, it, it resonates and that it makes sense, of course. Um, sorry, so the question was about cultural domination uh, and its distinction uh, from cultural influence, correct? So, so, so okay, so here is the thing. So... Um, Cabral wants to so so in Cabral's thinking there is always this idea of uh, idea of a return to history, um, and and so for Cabral having one's own history doesn't mean that one doesn't adopt say techniques practices and beliefs from other peoples. It means that one is free as much as possible to decide if and when to adopt techniques practices and beliefs from other peoples, whereas. When you think about cultural domination, obviously it, it involves uh, a kind of undermining of one's autonomy. I mean, it's it's in the name to dominate somebody, to impose your will upon them, and so on, uh, through coercion, but maybe through you know less directly coercive means. Uh, so a relationship of cultural domination is one in which okay, the dominated party doesn't really have any choice over whether or not to accept the, the cultural elements that are imposed upon it. So think about, you know, the imposition of a language on a people. They don't really have a choice. You know, you just say, look, uh, you're going to whatever, speak Portuguese, French, <coughs> uh, and that's it. 
Whereas cultural influence, of course, you know, if you look at human history, humans have always, you know, humans in living in different cultures uh, have always been influenced with one uh, by one another and not necessarily through domination, you know. So people see some invention, some technique that they think, okay, this could be useful for us uh, and, and they borrow it. So here the element of coercion uh, and of inequality is absent. So essentially Cabral wants to say, uh, this is why for Cabral it's, it's, it's interesting to think about it this way. You know, uh, the struggle for independence is actually what get you, gets you to a situation where you can have these relations of cultural influence instead of relations of cultural domination. So it's not about closing in upon yourself. It's about being in a position where now we can talk as equal interlocutors uh, and I could freely, freely borrow or not borrow from you. depends on whether I find it convincing or not useful or not. Um, yeah, so, so that in a nutshell is, is the distinction. Mm, okay, great. One reason we've brought these two strands together is that Cabral and Arukabos have this project of cultivating a national culture that is either authentic or um, truly autonomous. So this is an open question for either of you, but we might start with Zayad. What do you think Cabral would have thought about Aruka's project of uncovering a national philosophy? Because they both have this interest in um, in enabling critical dialogue and evaluation but what about this idea of an implicit philosophy uh, yeah so very briefly so i i don't know if i have much to say about what cabral would have thought about it simply because um so cabral doesn't really speak explicitly about you know a, a national philosophy but, but he's definitely interested in a national culture right so so in creating a national culture as well because in guinea bissau of course there were also there was also a multiplicity of ethnic groups who who lived different modes of life who had different relations uh with the portuguese colonial administration uh and uh, <clears throat> and so to the extent that uruka is interested in developing this this unifying uh cultural project of course this would be something that Cabral would have been interested in um, uh, and, and yes specifically also the, the kind of the, the political project or social project at the background of Uruka's uh, 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 project I think that would also be something that you can find similarities between it and Cabral's own project yeah I, I, I'll, I'll just leave it at that Cheng, did you have any thoughts on uh, that? Not really, but what I would just emphasize is that, you see, for Odero Ruka, culture and philosophy go together. Right? To have this national culture, you need this philosophy behind it to strengthen it. Right? So, but of course, he was a trained philosopher, so one would understand why he's <laughs> emphasizing on the philosophy. Okay, then. Um, I think I'll pass over to Scarlett. We'd like to finish with seeing where the conversation takes you, but to begin by comparing their approaches to serving culture. Yeah. Um, so, as previously discussed, Aruka, you know, he hoped that national projects on philosophic sagacity uh, would protect African nations from kind of unreflectively adopting harmful foreign values. Um, and as uh, I think... Uh, uh, Frederick said earlier, um, he believes that, you know, today that is that is the case, that uh, lots of Africans have um, adopted these kind of foreign values. Um, and Professor Ojiang gives technological morality as an example of a foreign value that is potentially dangerous to African societies. 
I guess the concern is this kind of assumption that because something is, you know, uh, more technologically advanced, it's better, um, and we want to look at the real content of the thing instead. Uh, yeah, so, so just briefly in terms of uh, the question of technological morality, uh, so uh, with respect to Cabral, you know, because I, I think, and this happens uh, quite a bit in, in some of the secondary literature on Cabral, where modernity as a kind of philosophical discourse gets associated with modernization theory. So people think that, you know, sometimes when I'm saying that Cabral was a cultural modernist or a modernist in the realm of philosophy of culture, that he was also uh, an adherent to modernization theory. So modernization theory, of course, was uh, a theory of development. So it reached, reached its sort of the kind of poster book uh, for it is... Uh, Walt Rostow's uh, Rostow's uh, 1960 book, The Stages of Economic Growth, uh, a non-communist manifesto. So you could see like the Cold War context in the subtitle. Uh, and according to this theory, I mean, one of the, 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 the claims that um, development theorists who adopted this account uh, advanced is this idea that, you know, you, you know, having uh, a modern society means that you have to start sort of reinvesting surplus from the agricultural sphere into industry located in urban centers. So that's, for example, something that Cabral rejected. I mean, he thought that for the foreseeable future, um, it just it was more practical <clears throat> and more equitable to focus on development in rural areas in Guinea-Bissau. Um, so so there is a sense and also Cabral, for example, was very close to what we today call agroecology. So this idea that our agricultural practices shouldn't be sort of directed against nature, but rather work with it in order to prevent things like soil degradation. Uh, you could see that in, in Cabral's writings uh, because he was trained as an agronomist and he was really, he was actually interested in how sort of colonial monoculture, for example, degrades the soil. So there is definitely a sense in which he's not some kind of... Uh, Promethean technological modernist where he says, okay, any kind of technological uh, development uh, is okay, you know, we should go and, and ahead and uh, uh, adopt it or implement it. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, so I, <clears throat> so, so, so that, that's, that's I, I think, the distinction to be made there with Cabral. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that reminds me of, I've got a quote here from Cabral, um, you know, which I think fits quite nicely with this idea of technological morality, which is, you know, the most important thing for the liberation movement is not to test the uniqueness or not non-uniqueness of the popular culture, but to undertake its critical analysis as a function of the needs of, the str of struggle and progress. Um, so, you know, like rather than just assuming something is better because it is unique or because it is new. Um, I mean, I may be interpreting this wrong, um, but, you know, have a look at the, the actual needs of the people and the needs of the uh the liberation movement um i was this kind of idea of progress was uh jumped out on me a little bit and i was wondering um a question for for professor ojiang um you know would aruka have thought in terms of progress do you think or would he articulate it would he have used that term would he have articulated his vision differently um and the question for both of you are you know what do you think or what do your respective um authors think constituted real social progress what was the kind of essence of that all right uh, i'll go first <laughs> uh, I, I wish adera oroka was here to answer it for himself but anyway i'll try and answer it on his behalf <laughs> right now what i would say is that odera oroka was really not hostile to non-african cultures 
to start with and that and that is precisely why unlike some scholars of African philosophy of his time he did not join in the bandwagon of whether African philosophy is professional or was professional or not whether it was unique or not no he did not go that route most scholars of his time tried fitting themselves in either one of the two solutions offered regarding the nature of African philosophy. Odera Oroka on his part came up, as I've already said, with the four trends in African philosophy. So according to him, African philosophy has four trends in that it could be approached in four different ways. In other words, his view accommodates topics, themes, methodologies, which others would argue belong typically to Western philosophy. Odera Oruka held African values and cultures in high regard. There's no doubt about that. But he did not romanticize them. I would say that his view resembled that of Kwame Nkrumah, you know, where there are three competing ideologies in Africa. Right? So the idea is to harmonize those three competing ideologies. However, the emergent, emergent ideology should be based on the African way of life, in his language, on African personality. In a way, that is what Odera Oruka has in mind when he talks about harmonization of national of cultures into national philosophy. When the sages come together so as to harmonize those aspects of their cultures that are in conflict, they should take into account as well non-African cultures, so long as they are not a threat to the African pedestal, so to speak. So in other words, he would not privilege one of the three ideologies over the other, so long as it was project, the projection was towards the benefit of humanity, so to speak. Yeah, Zayad, did you have any uh, comments on this idea of um, social progress? Yeah, so, so I think so. For for Cabral, uh, social social progress basically. Uh, involves sort of removing as many of the impediments uh, as possible, uh, impediments to uh, uh, human beings being able to sort of act as collective makers of their own history, to put it in, in the kind of Marxist terms. Uh, and, and that obviously, you know, involves uh, uh, improving material conditions. Um, it also Im involves uh, removing uh, what we can call so there are 
non-material impediments such as for example certain you know false beliefs about uh, uh, you know the natural world or, or about human relations which obviously exist in both you know uh, in, all, in all societies yeah so 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 it's very much geared towards this view that you know humans should be able to sort of almost create themselves so then there's again a kind of Promethean element but not necessarily in a kind of uh, ecologically destructive sense uh, and I think that's sort of what he understands by, by social progress that's great thank you thank you so much both of you um, yeah I think I'm going to move over to Kay now I've got a couple of questions on um, kind of the institutional pedagogical side of, uh, of African philosophy Yes, so um, to wrap up this discussion, we would like to link this back to um, another theme of the journal to which this podcast is an introduction. And this theme is the values of our education. Unfortunately, at this point, we began having problems with Ocheng's microphone. But we hope you'll listen on to hear Zayed's thoughts on teaching philosophy and making research accessible. Maybe Zayed, you could begin. Do you have specific ideas? about how this material should be taught? Um, yeah, so obviously I, I don't have the teaching uh, experience of Professor Ochiang, so I'm going to be very uh, brief uh, in terms of what I say, uh, because I think he'll have a lot more uh, uh, to say about this. Uh, but yeah, so right now, for example, I'm planning a course on uh, modern African intellectual history. Um, and, and I think, you know, one problem is a lot of uh, uh, this material, it's not that it doesn't get, it doesn't get taught, uh, taught, it doesn't get taught as philosophy, which I think becomes a bit of a problem. It becomes a kind of, uh, you know, case studies, for example, in anthropology, sort of, uh, uh, it's a kind of first order discourse. And then you're supposed to come up with a kind of theoretical discourse that refers back to it as primary material. Um, at least that that's the case I, I think in in, 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 um, in the way it's often taught in North America and, and uh, in uh, you know uh, African studies and um, anthropology um, which I, I think becomes a bit of a problem because um, so people read Cabral for example because they don't want to learn about, uh, they, they want to learn about sort of the history of Guinea-Bissau at that period in time which is fine Guinea-Bissau and Cape Verde which is fine but then they don't take on the actual ideas, take them seriously. And of course, but by taking them seriously, we don't mean, you know, we should celebrate them or something, but obviously critical engagement, actually thinking through the arguments, attempting to reconstruct the arguments and so on. Could I ask each of you, what are your practices beyond academia? Um, and interpret this, you know, as broadly as you want to. Oh, beyond academia. All right. Well, what I usually do is um, okay. I'm in Barbados. Um, I usually conduct public lectures. Yeah? I go to schools, primary schools, secondary schools, colleges, yeah? and just uh, explicate to them from African customs and uh, philosophical principles and the like. And also, whenever I visit Kenya, I usually visit every other year, but whenever I visit there, 
I always make sure that I go to the village, in the village, and have discussion and talks with the soldiers and also other persons in. Yeah, so I, I, in terms of uh, practices uh, outside academia, so um, so I mean this doesn't really uh, count, but I suppose it counts in, in, in the context I'm in because obviously I study at a North American uh, university and I write mostly in English, but you know I have this interest in, in making sure that um, contemporary African philosophy from other parts of the African, African continent is accessible to uh, to people in North Africa, because many people don't don't really uh, uh, study it there, so I, I try to write in Arabic as well. So for uh, for various outlets, and recently actually we did this uh, uh, we did a book chapter in Arabic on uh, on Cabral's thought uh, and philosophy. Uh, uh, so, so that was good, you know. The book was published in Cairo, but was distributed in Sudan as well, uh, and in uh, Tunisia and Morocco. I think it will be distributed there soon. Um, in terms of uh, <coughs> um, non-academic stuff, so again, you know, I try to uh, uh, make time for uh, as much public engagement as possible. So, uh, you know, like podcasts like this, for example, because I think it, it makes the research accessible. And finally, I think we'll mix these last two questions together. So um, what is your... what? What is your main takeaway from the discussion today? Um, and an optional question, if, if there's something you'd like to say on it. Uh, what is the biggest problem facing African philosophy today? Uh, yeah, so, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't really uh, uh, have a lot to add, but uh, yeah, I, I, I just want to reiterate what uh, Professor Roching has, uh, has emphasized, this importance to, uh, the importance of making sure that uh, African philosophy is being taught uh, in as many places as possible um, and and you know it's it's and this is sort of a general comment but you see today that uh, a lot of struggles about you know um, the structure of syllabi in North American and European universities the way they sometimes get interpreted it's as if you know we're telling people no you know uh, take Aristotle off the syllabus or something like that but it's really about integrating more elements and reframing pre-existing elements right because there is a way in which you know some people take the, the kind of decolonizing discourse to mean, well, you don't want us to teach Kant or something, but of course, you know, that's not, that's not the point. It's about context, reframing, uh, and drawing these connections. Uh, so think of, for example, Masolo's work on like Augustine as a North African philosopher of late antiquity. So again, that's a kind of reframing um, of a, of a pre-existing canonical figure or recent work on uh, Wilhelm Amo, for example, <coughs> Uh, early modern uh, uh, philosopher from the Gold Coast who, who was uh, in Germany and who who's sort of obviously involved in these uh, uh, in debates about the relationship between the mind and uh, between the mind and the body in the context of early modern philosophy. Uh, so so again, it's really this reframing uh, and rethinking of connections and parallels. Thank you for that. Finally, is there any main takeaways? you have from the discussion today or from the preparation you did. I start off in reading Zaid's essay on some of the Lotus writers. I was perhaps embarrassingly 
surprised at the the point you made that to be modern is not to be Western and that there's a strong association between those two, but it really doesn't make sense to equate them. And I was surprised when you said that to realize the extent to which I do equate those things unreflectively. So that's the thing that you've taught me the most. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, so I, I, I learned a lot from this uh, discussion, uh, from both uh, your questions and from uh, Professor uh, uh, Ching's uh, interventions and answers. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the thing I would uh, pick out as something that I've learned that became very clear to me is uh, the way that uh, Uruka's program of sage philosophy uh, uh, is, 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 is an attempt to sort of balance the, the criticisms that were leveled at the ethno-philosophers by the professional philosophers, while also not, not assuming that pre-existing uh, African intellectual discourses do not possess you know, individual thinkers who uh, are able to engage in second-order critical thinking about uh, existing beliefs. I, I, uh, so that's been uh, very helpful for me in terms of, uh, in terms of how I think. Uh, thank you. What I would say is that in a sense it's also from Odera Luka and America Kabbalah. The message is clear. One culture is important and one should be familiar with it as much as possible. It should continue one's grounding. But not well, thank you, Ocheng, Zayed, and Scarlett. It really was a pleasure to meet and share this conversation. Thank you for making room for the possibility of strengthening, broadening, or contesting our interpretive frameworks and field of consideration. Many thanks to the entire OPP AHRC See you then.